What's up, church? How are you guys doing this morning? You guys glad to be here? Yeah. All right, good. Um, hey, it's a, it's a good day, right? It's nice outside. The sun's shining. It's supposed to be nice all week. All right, we got a good church family here. Jesus has saved us. All right, if you're having a bad week this week, it's on you, all right, because uh, you got some pretty cool stuff uh, going on. Uh, this morning, we are going to continue on in our series called The Greatest Week in History, where we are going through the last week of Jesus' life before he died on the cross for us. Uh, but before we get rolling this morning, I just want to give a quick shout out to my man, Brody Conley. He is a junior at Tiffin Columbian. He usually sits right over here, second service. I don't know if he's here today, but, uh, but last week he started, or last week he, he won state in wrestling in his weight class. So we uh, just super proud of him. Uh, he is one of us, right? He's part of our church family, and uh, and just love. There's nothing better than watching our our uh, our kids here at Grace dominating other kids uh, all around the state. Okay, so I appreciate that, and I like that. But uh, his record actually this year was 48 and 0. All right. I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't know much about wrestling, but it sounds pretty good to me. Okay, undefeated. Um, in, anyway, th- last week was, a, was just a, it's a good week for Brody, okay? It was a, is a, probably, maybe it was even his greatest week um, in his life. I mean, accomplishing something so much. And by the way, let me just say this. Here at, at Grace, we got a group of young people, especially high schoolers that are part of few student ministries and stuff like that, that have just accomplished a lot already at their little young life, okay? So um, we got a bunch of them. He's not the only one. But uh, especially going to state and all kinds of stuff. But, but last year was a great, or last week was a great week for Brody. Uh, maybe his greatest week in his life. And think back, like we've all had good weeks, right? Maybe, you know, like when you won state. Okay. Um, but, uh, but we've all had good weeks. Think back real quick to like your greatest week of your life. When was that? Right? Like uh, if you're sitting next, you know, guys, you're sitting next to your wife. It was probably the week that you met her, Right? Yeah, okay, I'm kind of joking, but I guess maybe that's a bad joke. Um, that is a bad joke. Yeah, like uh, when I first met Kit, that was, a, that was a great week. Okay, maybe it was the week you got married, maybe it's some week in college. Maybe it was, you know, your, that one summer in high school when it was like, you know, you met what, who you thought was the girl of your dreams, and you didn't have any responsibility, but, you know, but you had some freedom. You know, maybe it was back then, or maybe it was some vacation, uh, but we've all experienced good weeks, and at some point, we've all had our, to this date, our, our greatest week, but there's no better week in history, especially even for us, all right, hands down, than Jesus' last week before his death and resurrection, all right? There's no greater week for us than that week, and uh, that's where we started talking about last week. Uh, last week, we actually backed up a little bit before that. We went to like two weeks before his death. And we talked about something that, that Jesus did two weeks before his death. He actually started his long walk back to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to be killed. Right? He knows that's going to happen. And he starts walking back to Jerusalem and he ends up in this little town called Bethany. Bethany is two miles away from Jerusalem and he raises a man from the dead. All right? It's one of his friends. His name is Lazarus. He had already been dead for four days. And he does this in front of a large crowd and they all can't believe it. All right? It's a miracle. It's something that no one would expect. Everybody expects dead people to stay dead, okay? That's what all dead people do. And so Jesus, he raises this guy from the dead, and Lazarus, he's up walking around. He does it in front of this huge crowd. Everybody's watching. Nobody can believe it. These are the same people that went to Lazarus's 
funeral days before. And on the Saturday before Jesus dies, he's back in Bethany. And, uh, and people are coming from all around. People are coming from Jerusalem. People are coming from all the lands around. They want to see Jesus because they hear Jesus is in town in Bethany. They want to see Jesus, but they also want to see Lazarus to see if this thing is true. All right, like they've heard the rumors. They've had people tell them it's kind of difficult to believe. And so they want to see Jesus and they want to see Lazarus. And that happens on Saturday where people, people are coming and Jesus is teaching. On Sunday morning, Jesus and his disciples, they wake up. They, uh, Jesus jumps on this donkey colt and they ride into Jerusalem and everybody's going crazy. Okay, this is what we now refer to as Palm Sunday. Everybody's going crazy. People are celebrating. Everybody is believing because Jesus has just raised this man from the dead. So they're like, okay, well, this guy has to be from God, right? And they're believing that Jesus is the Messiah, which is what the Old Testament said. It was a person the Old Testament talked about, said, hey, the Messiah will come, which just means Savior. And so they think that Jesus is the Savior that is going to rescue them from Rome, all right? Rome, at that point in history, owned everybody, okay, basically. They owned Israel. Israel was, you know, that area of land was part of the Roman Empire. And so they're like, hey, this is it. This is Messiah. This is the one who's going to save us. He's going to bring us justice. All right, he's going to be our king. All right, we're going to overthrow Rome. We're going to be a country again. This is going to be awesome. And so they're all partying and going crazy. People are waving palm branches. People are throwing their coats down as Jesus goes by. But there's this group of people in town that hate it. And ironically, it's the religious leaders of that day, all right? You would think these people would be the first ones to welcome Jesus in. They're the ones that were supposed to be pointing the whole nation of Israel to Jesus, saying, hey, guess what? The Messiah's coming. The Messiah's coming. That's their job, and they miss it. And so Jesus, when he gets into town, he, he rides up to the temple on the Temple Mount, and, and he looks around, and he leaves, he goes back to Bethany, and he's staying in Lazarus' house. I mean, think about it. It's the least Lazarus could do, right? Jesus like, raised him from the dead. He could let Jesus crash at his place. And so they're at Lazarus' house, and that's kind of his home base. It's where he's spending these nights in the last week of, of, of his life here um, before he dies. And on Monday morning, he wakes up, and his disciples and Jesus, they, they go and they walk back to Jerusalem. His disciples were basically his crew. Like, these are like his people that, that he invested in. These are his best friends, and these are the people that, that were following Jesus, his top guys. And they walk back to Jerusalem, and Jesus does something very significant on Monday that is kind of well-known. Uh, but uh, he heads immediately to the temple, and, and he looks around the temple just like he did the day before on Sunday. But this time, something just enrages Jesus. As he's looking around, he's looking at all these people. They've set up tables. Uh, they're selling things. They're selling, you know, like little, you know, they're selling things. They're exchanging money, and they're making money off of the people who are coming to worship God. Not only that, it's almost like he's looking around, he's like, these people are taking advantage, not just of people who are coming to worship God, but they're taking advantage of God to make money. And so Jesus goes to town on these people. He starts flipping over their tables. He starts throwing stuff on the ground. He starts kicking people out of the temple. And this was violent. Like we had this view of Jesus where he's got, you know, the long hair. He's wearing the white robes. He's holding a lamb and, you know, got this glow about him or something. And, and we view him as like, like a middle school girl, right? No offense to middle school girls. You guys are cool, all right? But, uh, but Jesus, that's how we view him, like meek and mild and just like, oh, bless you. You know, that type of thing. That's not who Jesus was at all. Okay? Jesus, he's out there. I mean, have you ever tried to move somebody who doesn't want to move? It's violent, okay? It takes force. That's what Jesus is doing here. He is, 
He is kicking these people. He is throwing these people out of the temple. And he is so mad that these people are treating God this way, that he's overturning everything. He's kicking everybody out, and it is violent. And the religious leaders are there. They're present for it, and they're looking at what's happening, and they don't like it, obviously. And they're like, we got to kill this guy. Remember after he raised Lazarus from the dead a, a few days before? You remember the religious leaders we talked about last week where they're like, hey, not only do we need to kill Jesus, but we got to kill Lazarus. Here they're like, yeah, yeah, this just affirms we got to do something about this. This guy just can't go on. Look what he's doing. But then everybody else, the Bible tells us, they are amazed. They've never seen anybody like this. They've never seen it, heard of anybody doing things like this. Like, this dude is bold. Like, like, this Jesus guy, they don't know him maybe, but they're like, I can't believe that he would challenge the authority of these leaders like that. I can't believe he, he would do that. And, and actually, Jerusalem, at this point in time, they have even more people in the city than usual because they have this festival that's going on, and that's actually part of the reason why Jesus is there. And so this, there's just, this place is just crowded. It is packed full of people from all around the world, and they're there, and they are just amazed. And the Bible tells us that after Jesus and his disciples do that, and Jesus is teaching a little bit, and they kind of go back and forth, but they actually then they head back to Bethany for the night. Next morning, Tuesday, right? Jesus and his disciples, they wake up, and they head back to Jerusalem. That's kind of what their thing was at this point. That's the routine. They go straight to the temple. And uh, when they get to the temple, Jesus, the Bible tells us, just begins to teach. There's people all over the place. There's, he teaches, there's a crowd there, a big crowd. This crowd is really a mix of people. He's got, there's people there that are, that are the religious leaders, like the religious elite of the day. And there's also just common people there. There's people from all around the world there. Everybody wants to hear what this Jesus guy has to say. And everybody wants to see what this Jesus guy is going to do next. And the religious leaders confront Jesus publicly. And they're basically asking, hey, why are you doing this? Who made you in charge, Jesus? Why do you think you have the authority of, of doing what you did yesterday, overturning tables? Who, who, you know, why are you in charge of this? And they try to trap Jesus, and they try to, they try to trick, Jesus, trick Jesus. And it's so interesting, and I've said this multiple times in the past, but Jesus, he came as like the ultimate religious leader, but he didn't gravitate towards religious people. It's like the opposite of what we think. Jesus came as the ultimate religious leader. Literally, it's God in a man, you know, in human form. All right? But he did not gravitate towards religious people. In fact, they constantly butt heads with each other, just like they are this day. And so Jesus, the Bible tells us, begins by telling them a story. Right? Actually, it's called a parable. And a parable is a type of story. It's just a story that Jesus used uh, to teach people, you know, to make a point, okay? So he tells a story. He's telling a story to make a point, and Jesus used this all the time. It's interesting. We're going to be looking at Mark's account here this morning, but Mark, uh, he doesn't really talk about parables that much. Like, he gives a whole account of Jesus's life, but he doesn't talk about the parables. I don't know if he just didn't like parables or didn't think that was, you know, there's just so much other stuff to write down, so he didn't, he didn't give us that. Maybe he thought Matthew had it all covered because Matthew was a disciple, so he's like their eyewitness guy you know, watching all these things happen. So, but, uh, so Mark, he doesn't really talk about parables much. He, the, the first or the last parable that he had talked about was in Mark chapter 4 at the beginning of the book. This is all the way at the end of the book in Mark chapter 12. And, uh, and so it's just interesting. All I'm saying is that it's, Mark seems to think this story is very important enough to add into his account. All right. And so Mark begins by telling us, and Mark may have been there, 
um, as an eyewitness to this. But Mark chapter 12, verse 1 is where we're going to start. And so Jesus is, there's a whole crowd around him, and he begins to speak to them, the crowd, both common people and both the religious elite people. And he begins to speak to them in parables, these stories. And this is the story that he tells. He says, all right, well, let me tell you a story. A man planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it. He dug a, out a pit for a wine press, and he built a watchtower. And then he leased it to tenant farmers, and they went away. Now, something that I don't think we understood, I didn't understand until I, start, I started studying this, is that what Jesus is doing is he's actually borrowing a story, a parable, right, out of the Old Testament. And the religious leaders in this day that are in the crowd, they're listening to what Jesus has to say, they totally get this, all right? Immediately, they're like, whoa, you stole that, all right? We know this story. We know how this story goes. They recognize this, that he's borrowing a story from the Old Testament. And this story that he is borrowing is actually told by a prophet named Isaiah. Now, what the heck is a prophet? Basically, a prophet is just a middleman, okay? He's in between the Jewish people and God. And so what God would say is, hey, hey, prophet, and prophet's just a normal guy, all right? Prophets, they had their issues too, all right? We think a prophet is like, you know, some ultra holy person that wasn't the case, just a normal dude or, or woman. And so what God would say is he would go to the prophet and say, hey, I want you to tell the Jewish people this. The prophet would say, okay, I got that message. Hey, Jewish people, this is what God says. Does that make sense? He's just the messenger, all right? So, um, there's this prophet named Isaiah that tells a very, very similar story, the same story that Jesus is using, except for Jesus is going to, uh, he's going to change it up a little bit. And so when Isaiah tells this story, all the way back in history, right, hundreds of years before Jesus, uh, there is a dark time in Israel's history. All right, it's not good. God is not happy by any means with Israel or the Jewish people. And it's because they are refusing to follow follow God. And the story that Isaiah tells goes kind of like this. He says, hey, this is is the scenario. It's like God's the owner of a vineyard. And you Jewish people, you guys are like a vineyard, okay? Israel is like a vineyard. And uh, and it's like God went in and he plants this vineyard. He created this vineyard. And he spent time, he was creative with it. And he he worked on it. And he built a fence. He built a wine press. He built a tower. Basically, a wine press is just a a hole in the ground that you got to dig out, right? Just to make wine and juice and stuff like that. He's like, he, he did that. And he even builds a tower. Like, like the owner of, vineyard, of the vineyard, God, he goes over and above, all right? He gives the vineyard every opportunity to grow. Like he's made it perfect for them. And the owner, in return, expects some good grapes. That makes sense. But Isaiah's like, God, God's not getting good grapes. And he ain't happy about it. In fact, he's getting rotten grapes. And so Isaiah tells the Jewish people, here's the message from God. God is like an owner, and you guys are like a vineyard, and God is going to let his vineyard go. He stopped, he's going to stop working on it for a while. And what Isaiah tells them is that the, Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, they're going to come in, and they're going to they're de- defeat Israel and really destroy Israel. And uh, that's exactly what happens a few years after in the Babylonian invasion. But, but back, let's go back to Jesus now. As soon as Jesus tells this part of the story, right? As soon as these words lead Jesus' mouth, I, you, know, my, you know, the religious leaders, they're just like, oh, yeah, okay, we know that story. All right, yeah, we, we got that. All right, he's talking about us. We know how it is. All right, yeah, God's the owner. We're the vineyard. All right, where's he going to go? What's, gonna, what's Jesus going to say next? But the one thing Jesus has is he does have their attention. Okay, because they know what's going on here. Uh, but he also has the attention of the common people as well, like the everyday people in the crowd. 
because they might not know about Isaiah. They might not be able to connect this or, or you know, be able to relate or recognize what Jesus is doing here, but they do know the situation. Because the situation was super familiar back then. This is something that happened all the time. In fact, there's probably people in the crowd who are like, hey, yeah, that's like me. All right, I got some land. I rent it out to farmers. Or, or maybe there's other people in the crowd going, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm like a farmer because I, I work somebody else's land, and that's, you know, that's how I make a living. So, so a lot of people are probably connecting exactly with what Jesus is saying because back then if, they, you, know, if you owned some land, you could hire farmers to farm that land, and in exchange you would get a portion Right? Or some of, the, some of the produce, sometimes that was like 50% back then. And so Jesus tells the story, and to kind of the everyday people, they're looking at this and like, okay, wow, you know, this, this owner really put a lot of time into it. Like, this was a familiar deal, but in this particular case, if Jesus is talking about here, this is an even bigger deal. Because look what the owner has done. Hey, it's not like he just had a vineyard and like, rent it out real quick, like, ah, I'll just, you know, see what, see what happens. No, this guy put work and time and effort into it. It says, a man planted a vineyard. He started from scratch. All he had was dirt, right? He plants this vineyard. He builds a fence around it. He dug out a pit for a wine press, all right, in, in rock. That's how it was built. And then he built even a watchtower for it. So this guy makes this great, great place. Like, this vineyard is, it's nice, Right? And he puts thought into it, and it's creative, and then he decides to lease it out. So that's the situation for those of us 2,000 years later who are not connected with their culture. Now we can kind of understand. All right, next verse, verse 2. He says, at harvest time, the owner, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. So the servant goes, he sends, so the owner sends the servant, and the servant's like, hey, you know, I'm from, you know, I'm representing the owner. Uh, I need, we, he needs his fair share. It's time, you know, time to collect whatever the greed upon him out. All right, I'm ready to take it back to the owner. But these guys don't do that. It says that they took him, they beat him, and then they sent him away empty-handed. So not only do the farmers refuse to pay, but they beat the guy. And so everybody in the crowd, as Jesus is telling this story, they'd be like, whoa, that's messed up. What's going on here? Why would they do that? Like, like that is dirty, right? That's, that's, that's wrong. Have you ever had a guy, or no, it doesn't have to be, have you ever had somebody, um, you know, promise you something or promise to pay you back and they never paid you back? Yeah. Three, four, five of you guys. First service, they were all like, yeah. They were even like looking at each other. I could see it. It's like, dang. <laughs> All right, but, uh, but now you guys, everybody pays up, all right? When that happens, I view that kind of as annoying, all right? Maybe you don't, maybe that's not a big deal. But, uh, but imagine how this would have gone for the owner, right? Just, just think through this with me real quick. The servant comes back, all right? The worker comes back, and the owner's like, hey, where's my cut? You know, I put all that work into it. I get a portion of it, and the worker's like, oh, yeah, I don't have that, um, the owner's like, what do you mean you don't have it? Like, that's your job, all right? You're supposed to go, you know, you're supposed to get that for me. And the worker's like, yeah, they didn't give it to me. And that's why I got a black eye. You know, they, they, they you know, beat me after that. And the owner's going, what is going on here? Right? Like, we agreed on this price. Like, like this is how it works. And so the owner has a lot of workers, right? And so what does he do? He would do what I would do. He goes and gets the bigger guy. Right? Like Bruno or, um, you know, Bubba, Gunther, Diesel, you know, whatever. Some sweet name like that. And so he goes to Gunther and he's like, hey, Gunther, I need you to go collect this money for me. And so Gunther's like, yeah, no, you know, no problem. I probably can't do it deep enough. Yeah, shut up. All right. And so, 
Gunther goes, he's like, I got this. And so he says again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head. So they just slap Gunther in the face, and they treat him shamefully. Everybody in the crowd's like, what? And so the owner says he sent another, and this guy didn't come back. Jesus says, they killed that one. And he also sent many others. Some they beat, others they killed. They have no respect for what's going on with these people. And, and here's the owner, right? He's given these people chance after chance after chance after chance. And so for the crowd, as they're listening to this story, and they're, they're like, okay, all right, we're following you, Jesus. Not only are they, sh- I mean, really, even more than being shocked about, hey, you know, I can't believe these people treat, you know, they killed a guy. Like, that's mess- they murdered this guy who's just doing the right thing. Even more than that, all right, it's like why, they're shocked that the owner is giving these guys chance after chance after chance after chance. Like, that is even more shocking. And they still refuse to pay. And the farmers are getting worse and worse. And, I mean, they've killed people at this point. And, and so the crowd, when, as they're listening, they just can't believe that this would happen. They're just like, what, what is going on here? Like, maybe even some of them out in the crowd, they're just like, hey, Jesus, like, like that farmer needs justice. Like, he needs to go to the cops. They, you know, they need, to, they need to arrest these guys. These farmers, they deserve to die. Like, they deserve to be on death roll. They, they've killed multiple people. They beat others up. They don't pay. It's all for their greed. And so the people would be naturally thinking to themselves, as Jesus is telling the story, is why isn't the owner doing something? Why isn't he doing something? Like, why does he keep giving them chance after chance after chance? This just doesn't seem right. And so Jesus continues on in the story. In verse 6, he says, he still had one to send. This is a beloved son. Now, this word for beloved, this isn't like the word for love in the, in the Greek. It's not like uh, the same word that you'd use for like, I love my dog, all right, or your cat. And don't want to leave out you cat people, all right. Or like for me, my Buckeyes, who I love a little less today than I did last week, all right. It's not, that's, not, that's not what it is, right. This, is, this word is like a deep love. This is the love that you would have, like a parent would have for a child, like their only child. And so, and so you know, what this, Jesus is saying, no, this owner, he has one son, and he loves his son deeply. And so he's like, he's going to send his son because they will respect his son. So finally, he sent him to them saying, they will surely respect my son. Like, they're going to respect my kid. But those tenant farmers said to one another, as they see Jesus, or not Jesus, as they see the son walking down the road, and, you know, they, they turn to each other like, hey, that's his son. That's the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Now, for us, as we're reading this, we're like, well, how does that work out? That doesn't seem right. You murder someone's son, and he gets his inheritance. But back then, everybody in the crowd, they fully understood the law. And the law was, hey, if an owner of, let's say, a piece of property or piece of land, if that owner had no inheritance or had no a child to, you know, offspring to leave his inheritance to, um, when that owner died, it would actually go to the people who possessed the land, right? The people who are working the land. And so these people are exactly right. They're like, hey, if we kill this guy's son, when that guy dies, it comes to us, right? This, this vineyard that this guy worked so hard. And so they say, come, let's kill him. They, so they seized him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. This last part, it's just jaw-dropping to these people, right? Not only do they murder the son, which was mind-boggling to these people, 
But even more than that, back then it was, hey, if you need, you know, if you died, like you deserved a proper burial. Like that was important. Even if you didn't like the person, at least they, you know, they needed to be put in the ground right or whatever. And so these people, they don't even do that. They don't even give this guy, they don't even bury this guy. They just take his body, they just throw him out. So much disrespect. Like they just don't care. And so Jesus tells the story, and this is really the end of the story, and Jesus just asks them a question. And my guess is that, I mean, he's talking to a big crowd, but my guess is maybe he's looking at some of the religious leaders in the crowd, and he asks them, he says, hey, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He's like, what should he do? What would you do? All right, if this happened. I, like, just think about that personally for yourself right now. Like, what would you do if you had sent, you know, uh, an employee, an employee, an employee? These people are killing, you know, some of them. They're good friends of yours. And then they, you have one son or one child. You send that child and they murder him or her. What would you do? Matthew actually gives us the same account. Again, Matthew is there. We know he's an eyewitness. He's one of Jesus' disciples. And he actually tells us that, uh, that somebody in the crowd actually kind of blurts out in Matthew chapter 21. It says, someone says this. They say, hey, he will completely destroy those terrible men. He's like, yeah, the owner should go kill them. That's what's right, they told him. And then leases vineyard to other farmers who will actually give him his fruit at the harvest. And so Jesus hears that answer and he, and he looks at them and back to Mark he says, yeah, that's it. He will come and kill the farmers. Or he will bring justice or judgment on these guys, and they will give the vineyard to others. Then he says, haven't you read the scripture? Again, I think he's talking to the religious leaders who have, like, most of the Old Testament memorized. I don't know how that's possible, but they did it. Right? He says, haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Right? He's quoting a psalm, Psalm 118, who King David actually wrote about himself. And he says, this came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. He's like, haven't you read this piece of scripture? All right, and he's, Jesus, what he's doing is he's applying this to himself. He's saying, this is how it is. He's saying, you guys are like the builders and I'm a stone and you're rejecting to use me. You're rejecting me. But you guys don't understand, I'm the cornerstone. I'm the most important piece. Right, I'm, the, I'm, the part, I'm the person, that, you know, I'm the one that matters. And he's pointing back to King David, and he's saying, you guys are missing it. See, what Jesus is doing here is he is pointing back, not just to David, but also to Isaiah in this story that he borrows. He's saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, just like Isaiah said, like God's the landowner, and Israel's, you know, the vineyard, and, and the non-believing Jews, right, those are the tenants, okay, especially the religious leaders that Jesus is talking to, and the servants, he's saying the servants, those are the Old Testament prophets, like Isaiah was. And what Jesus is pointing out to them, all right, focus in here, what Jesus is pointing out, pointing out to them, he's saying, hey, you have rejected the messengers of the owner, and God has given you chance after chance, after chance, after chance. He's saying that, I mean, if you think about it, that's what the majority of the Old Testament is, right? It's written by a prophet saying, hey, this is, this is what happened, but also this is what God says. And, and it's like prophet after prophet came to the Jewish people, and they're begging the Jewish people to do the right thing. They're begging the Jewish people to do, to get right with God. And the Jewish people as a whole, they, 
they chose to completely reject God. They're like, no, no, no. Yeah, we, we're good with God. All right, we like the idea of God, but we're going to go do our own thing because this is what we want to do, right? We're not, we're not doing God's thing. We're going to go do our own thing. But then when the Jewish people got in trouble, they run back to God and say, hey, you know, God, you need to help me out. We got a problem over here, you know, in this part of my life. It's the same thing that we do here today. But it's so interesting that God's prophets are rejected by the very people claiming to be obedient to God. And many of them were killed. Actually, Isaiah, the guy who Jesus is quoting here, or the same story that he's using, Isaiah was sawn in half by the Jewish people, right? Not the way I'd prefer to go, personally. Uh, but they sawed him in half, all right, into two pieces. But these people who are standing in this crowd, I mean, a lot of these guys, they, they know that because they're Jewish and they're super into that. And, the, and, and they're, you know, they're thinking through here and they're probably, my guess is that some of the prophets are kind of going through their head. Oh, okay, I kind of see what Jesus is saying here. Yeah, like guys like Samuel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obadiah and Jonah and Micah and Nahum and Habakkuk and Zephaniah and Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. And those are just some that got the book, right? They got a book, right? A lot of prophets, they didn't even get a, they didn't get a book like Elijah and Elisha and John the Baptist who had just died like a year before, who was just put to death. He was beheaded just a year before here. And so we get this picture that Jesus is trying to paint to these guys. And he's saying, yeah, yeah, it's almost as if God is trying to reach the Jewish people. And he's saying, hey, you're in. Hey, next guy up. Hey, you go. Hey, you try. Hey, maybe you can, maybe you can convince them to do the right thing. And he keeps sending, sending, sending. He keeps giving them chance after chance after chance. And some of them they beat. And some of them they killed. Until finally... God sent his son, and that's what was going on here with Jesus. That was Jesus as he's telling this story, and he's trying to get the people to understand. He's saying, I'm that guy. I'm that son. He's telling this to the very people who are going to kill him, just like what happens in the story. And the religious leaders, they get it. They get what Jesus is saying, and they understand. All right, they don't believe that he's from God. But they understand what Jesus is saying. And so in verse 12, it says they were looking for a way to arrest him. Right? Their ultimate goal is to get rid of this guy, kill him. Uh, but they feared the crowd because they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. Right? And so they left him and they went away. Now how does this apply to us today? I'm not Jewish. Okay, I'm not, I, you know, I didn't deal with prophets or, you know, saw a prophet in half. I didn't do anything like that. But if you think you dodged a bullet because you're not a Jew, right, you got it wrong. Because this story that Jesus is telling is for you and it's for me too. See, in the story, the tenets represent the non-believing Jews. Okay, we, we get that. But, but some of us are in the same boat. Because we're not right with God in our lives. I mean, some of us in here, we don't have a relationship with God. We just never, we just never did it. We never started that relationship. And in fact, we're a lot like these tenets where God has given us chance after chance after chance after chance. And, and maybe you're sitting there and you're like, I don't know, like, well, God didn't send like a prophet to me to tell me, hey, this is what God says. But actually, he kind of did. Because we have the words here in our Bible that are collecting dust in a cabinet at home. <laughs> it's just we ignore it. And he also sent his son to make things right. And many people ignore that too. See, what Jesus is doing here, and he's so, so, 
smart. Like, like you know, obviously he's God, so he's smart. But, you know, he's so incredibly intense. He is, what he's doing is he's forcing the crowd to make a decision on him. He's doing the same thing here this morning. And so my question for you today is basically, have you accepted Jesus or rejected Jesus? Right, there's no middle ground, by the way. I think a lot of people, it's like, you know, a lot of people are like, well, you know, I, I haven't rejected Jesus, but I'm not fully sure if I'm on board with Jesus either. And so, you know, for you, let me just say, there's no middle ground. It's either yes or a no. There's no gray area. It's either you accept him or you have rejected him. If you've chosen not to make that decision, that is rejecting him. Right? There's no in between. And the Bible, and really the whole reason why Jesus came Right, this week and what he's trying, what he's going to do just days later is he's coming to pay a price that each and every one of us cannot pay. Here's the deal. Like each and every one of us, we've all sinned. We've all done wrong. Like that's part of our, that's a part of our life. Um, you know, I don't think there's anybody in here that's like, hey, I'm perfect. But there's a lot of people in here that think they're not that bad. The Bible tells us the opposite. The Bible says, no, we are all so messed up. Like, we can't even believe or under, begin to understand how messed up we are or how far apart from God we are. And then Jesus came to make a way because we can't be with God because God is ultimately, he's infinitely holy and he's perfect. He can't be with sin, which is a problem for us. So he came to make, make a way. And the Bible tells us that on three days later, when he dies on that cross, that he paid for everything that each and every one of us, including myself, have ever done wrong. Well, why do you have to do that? Well, it's because God's perfectly just. He's 100% just, right? A just judge like God cannot just sweep wrong under the rug. You can't do that. It has to be paid for. Like, that's the right thing. And our issue is we're sinning against an ultimately, you know, uh, infinitely holy, perfect God. And so we have a price to pay for our sin that we can't physically ever pay. And so Jesus came, and God wrapped himself in a body. He was born in a barn. He lived a perfect life. We, as humans, we ended up putting him to death in a horrible, terrible way. And in that moment, the Bible tells us that God paid our price, and he paid our punishment that each and every one of us deserved to pay. Like, it is right for us to pay. But God took it. And in that moment, as he poured out his wrath, it was more than just dying. There's stuff that we can't even understand. He poured out his wrath on himself. And in that moment, when he did that, all right, the Bible tells us that he satisfied two things. Number one, he satisfied his love for us, all right, that he would sacrifice himself. Like the God of the universe, who is, who is you know, infinitely powerful and holy, would come and get drugged through the mud here on the earth and through the dirt and then get put to death like a common criminal in a horrible way. And, 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 and he satisfied his love that he would do all of that for us. But he also satisfied his justice. And he made things right. And so now God gives each and every one of us a decision, okay? This, every person in this room, me, myself included, we all have a decision to make in our life, and that is, is to choose to start that relationship with, with God or, or to choose not to. To choose to accept Jesus or to reject Jesus. It's your decision. It's not between you and your spouse, not between you and your friend, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your, you know, the, you know whoever. It's only between you and God. And my question for you this morning is, have you done that? Are you sure that you've done it? You know, I talk to a lot of people, 
about this, and this is the most important thing, most important decision you could ever make in your entire life. And people are like, yeah, you know, uh, Zach, I, yeah, I've done that. I've always believed. I've always been saved. I've always, you know, I've always believed in God and, and, uh, and that. And I'm like, no, you haven't. <laughs> All right, this is not what the Bible says. This is a decision that you've got to make at some point in your life. And if you can't think to a moment that you made the most important decision that you could ever have made in your entire life, if you can't think to that moment or when that was, I'm telling you right now, you probably haven't. I would bet that you haven't. You've just tricked yourself into thinking that you're good. You've tricked yourself into thinking that it's good enough. It's not by doing good stuff. It's not by being a good person. It's about making this decision in your life. And so I encourage you to do that uh, today. Um, there's no better day, okay? It's not some crazy magical words that you have to say. It's just giving your life over to Jesus. And it's a conversation between only you and Jesus. If you want to do that this morning, AJ and I will be down here at the front, in front of the stage this morning. We'd love to answer any questions that you might have. But you could do this during this next song that we're going to sing. Right? You don't have to kneel. You don't have to say anything out loud. It's God knows your every thought in your head. You could make that commitment to him in your mind. Just give your life to him. That's all it is. Accept him for what he's done for you. Believe that Jesus was God and that he had died for you. And ask him to be a part of your life. That's it. Super simple. If you do that today, you know, if you're not going to do it here, take five minutes out of your day and, you know, it's nice outside, go on a walk, go in the garage, do something where it's just you and God and talk to him there. But take care of that today. There's no better time to do it today because none of us in this room are guaranteed tomorrow. And if you do that, I'd encourage you, take the next step and tell somebody. Someone who brought you, write it on a card here before you, before you leave, call in in the church later this week or something, but tell somebody. It's the most important decision you could ever make in your entire life. It's interesting that Jesus is forcing us to make a decision on him this morning. And he was forcing the crowd to make a decision on him 2,000 years ago. But he was also forcing his disciples to make a decision on him too. The Bible says after this that Jesus and his disciples, they leave Jerusalem, they go back to Bethany, they go back to home base, and later that night, Judas, one of Jesus' own disciples, one of his right-hand guys, one of his best friends, sneaks back to Jerusalem, goes to these same religious leaders that Jesus had told this story to and that were questioning his authority, and they, he goes to the religious leaders, and basically he just says, hey, what will you do for me if I give you Jesus? Right, what will you give me? How much money will you give me if I, make it, if I make it possible for Jesus to be arrested, if I hand him over to you? And from that moment on, on this Tuesday night, Judas starts looking for a way to trap Jesus and to get him arrested. And we'll talk more about that next week. But let's pray. God, we... Um, we ask that if there's anybody in this room who has not made that decision to follow you, that they would do that here today. That they wouldn't leave this building without getting right with you. God, all we have to do, you haven't made it, you know, it's not complicated. We just have to understand that you died for us, that you made a way, that we're messed up people, and that's why you had to make a way. That's why you had to pay for our punishment that we rightfully deserve. And you did that 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on that cross and he rose again. And God, we thank you for that. 
so much. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that. If there's anybody in this room who hasn't done that, we ask that they take care of it today. God, we, uh, we thank you for this church family that you've given us. And we thank you for this day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.